You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Lauren, and I'm a project leader at the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Uh, Over the next hour, we will be discussing online hate targeting Indigenous peoples and some recommendations for combating its prevalence and impact. Uh, This event is part of a series of roundtable events that we are organizing as part of the Digital Peace Project. I would also like to thank Concordia University's Indigenous Directions Office for partnering with us for this event. But I briefly wanted to introduce our wonderful moderator of today. Uh, Christy Snell is with us. She's the academic director and journalistic leader in residence at Concordia University's Institute for Inclusive, Investigative, and Innovative Journalism, or I3J. She's a member of the Standing Buffalo Dakota Nation. Thanks so much for being here, Christy. Um, and I'll turn it over to Aiden. Thank you, Lauren. Gwayam uh, Sitwen. Hello, everyone. My name is Aiden Tekumsakondo. I'm Mi'kmaq from the community of Geskabegia. And as mentioned, I work for the Office of Indigenous Directions. Uh, and I'm also a student majoring in First People Studies and minoring in Law and Society. Uh, to give a general overview of what we do, the Office of Indigenous Directions leads the implementation of the Indigenous Directions Action Plan, uh, which works to decolonize and indigenize the university, which can sometimes involve uh, developing policies and consulting with different groups. Uh, we work closely with other Indigenous faculty and staff and students. Uh, and as the events coordinator, I help organize events that highlight and celebrate Indigenous cultures. Some of our previous events include uh, various panel discussions, guest speakers, and most recently, our uh, Miwachimo Storytellers Competition. Uh, Now we're grateful to have been able to partner with the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies and contribute to the Digital Peace Project to discuss the issue of online hate uh, towards Indigenous peoples. Um, But before we begin uh, the event, we'd like to acknowledge that Concordia University is located in unceded Indigenous lands, the Ganyangahaga Nation, uh, are recognized as the custodians of the land and waters on which we gather today. Jojage is historically known as the gathering place for many First Nations. Today is a home of a diverse population of Indigenous and other peoples. We respect the continued connections with the past, present, and future, and the ongoing relationships with Indigenous peoples and other peoples within the Montreal community. Uh, so thank you very much, and I hope you all really enjoy the panel. Uh, I'll now hand it over to our moderator for today's event, Christy. Thanks so much. Uh, And thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here today uh, talking about this important issue. Um, This is an issue that I am close to. I have a a lot of Indigenous colleagues and friends who are dealing with online hate every single day, Um, from racist comments to being called names to uh, having their inboxes filled with hate mail after they publish certain types of stories. Um, In 2015, CBC made the decision to temporarily close comment threads on most Indigenous-related stories that it posts online. Uh, It was finding a disproportionate number of comments were crossing the line. Um, Some were based in ignorance, uh, but many were clearly hateful. So this is where we find ourselves. It's It's a very real concern for Indigenous people looking to share their knowledge and speak their truth online. So we want to look today at what can be done to deal with the problem. So I'm joined today by four amazing people who are going to be discussing this. So what I'll do is I'll do a little introduction for each of our panelists, then they'll each speak for about five minutes, a sort of introduction to their work and their experience in dealing with this. Um, and then we'll have some questions. So I'll start with Bailey Oster. She's a Métis woman with roots in the Red River Settlement in St. Paul de Métis. She's vice president of New Dawn, the Métis women's organization within Alberta, and the youth programs and services director at Métis Nation of Alberta. And Bailey, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Thank you so much for having me. You know, like I was introduced, my name is Bailey Oster. I I'm the Youth Program Services Director of the Métis Nation of Alberta, and I recently actually also had the opportunity to attend CSW 67 um, at the United Nations, so that's the Commission for the Status of Women um, at the United Nations, and just as a little, something that I thought was interesting in attending that was, you know, I went on behalf of Métis National Council, and there wasn't a single side event or panel put together that focused on Indigenous issues, and the topic that they were covering was technology, and I had been told that the year previous, when the topic was climate change, there was nine or ten Indigenous panels, so I thought it was just really interesting that when they thought of technology, they didn't assume that Indigenous people had anything to say, or didn't assume that this was um, an issue that impacted Indigenous people's lives, and that was almost comical to me because it's obvious, you know, even by the conversations we're going to have today that technology all the way back from like times of colonization has impacted Indigenous people um, disproportionately um, in negative and positive ways. And we're going to talk about how that's continued on today. Um, but to start, I want to talk a little bit about my experience with the social internet, which is what I'm going to call it, because I tend to think that's where Indigenous people face the most hate is the social internet. It's the social media platforms. It's, you know, anywhere online where we interact socially. Um, and I, how I think it relates on both a micro and macro scale to the discussion we're going to have here today. So I'm currently 28 years old, and I'm kind of from that last generation to grow up without a phone in my pocket and readily available internet access. Although by the time I was a teenager, these things were quickly becoming more and more uh, relevant to my life and more common um, for people my age to have. But I really feel for especially the young people growing up in, in these, these next generations, always having the social internet in their pocket, always having access to social media, always having access to everyone around them's opinions and ideas. Um, navigating these spaces isn't easy, even for an adult, between uh, constant comparison to your peers, cyberbullying and online hate. Um, there's a lot to deal with for someone. Um, but despite this, I'm still an advocate for the use of the social internet. I don't think that it's all bad. I think that there are ways to use these spaces that can be really positive for community building and it's discussions on how do we make these spaces safer for us as Indigenous people? How do we make these um, spaces safe, basically? Um, the social internet, it's a way for people to connect. It can be a safe space for someone who needs community or connection and may not be able to get that in their real life. Um, there are millions of spaces across the internet for, you know, people with niche interests or life experiences or someone who might be, you know, 2S LGBTQ plus and just doesn't know where they fit in. These are places where you can gather, you can connect, you can create relationships with each other and create kinship ties. And so for all the bad we see out there, there's a lot of good as well. And this revolution of communication is the largest technological revolution that we've had as a people since the printing press and really only in the beginning stages of that revolution. And we have no idea what the long-term consequences will be for humanity in the world. So we have to go about navigating these spaces the best way we know how today. Um, but of course in Canada, indigenous people face far more hate online than non-indigenous people. Um, you know, as Christy mentioned in her introduction, just the fact that CBC felt the need to block comments specifically on Indigenous issues because of the amount of hate and vitriol that they get. Journalists in Canada, especially female journalists and especially female journalists of colour, um, specifically Indigenous women, which is what, you know, my focus is on, receive a huge amount, a disproportionate amount of hate and that, um, you know, causes impacts on their, on their, you know, psychological health, even their physical health, the kind of stress that that can put on your body, 
how does it drive people away from those careers, never mind just in their social life? But I think that, you know, as Indigenous people, we don't necessarily have the ability to influence algorithms or convince billionaire CEOs or international governments to make these spaces safer for us. But I'm still an advocate for using these online spaces because while they have undeniable issues, they're an incredibly powerful tool that we can use to create community and start movements that can and will change the world. So movements like I Don't Know More here in Canada or Black Lives Matter um, in the States have had incredible impacts across the world. And they're tangible proof of the power of the internet um, and what you know min minority groups, indigenous groups, um, can do when they come together for a common cause. These movements started online and are still impacting our world today, and they show us the power of connection through fighting for a common purpose. But in terms of how to keep yourself safe from online hate, I don't have all the answers, but I do know don't be afraid to use the tools that social media gives you to make yourself safe. Like, free speech is important, but if you are receiving hate online, use that block button with abandon. Do not be scared to block people who make you feel unsafe. Um, mute keywords that you might find triggering. If people are coming at you and you are you know, a young person on the internet, do what you have to do to stay safe. Find online spaces that make you feel comfortable. There are tons of communities out there that aren't, that aren't, you know, that don't spew that online hate that are safe for people. Um, and don't be afraid to fight for those spaces to remain safe. Um, you know, practice self-care and collaborate with your with your peers. And just we're going to talk a lot about more, a lot more about it later. Um, but that's just kind of my perspective on the Internet. Personally, I kind of stay off the social Internet except to watch because I am I don't want to put up with that criticism. And that's my own choice. So, um yeah, that's kind of where I come from. Um, thank you so much again for having me, and I look forward to having this discussion further. Excellent, Bailey. Thanks so much. Uh, a lot to discuss there already. Um, next, we'll hear from uh, Dr. Suzanne Kite. She's an Oglala Lakota performance artist, visual artist, and composer, raised in Southern California, also research assistant at the Initiative for Indigenous Futures. Suzanne, welcome. Hi. Suzanne Kite, Amacha Pikashto, Oglala Hamacha. Um, my relatives, I shake your hands with a happy heart. Um, my name is uh, Dr. Suzanne Kite. I um, am very grateful to be invited here today uh, amongst really awesome colleagues. I wanted to speak briefly about um, my perspectives. I, I have a, I'm coming from a few perspectives. First of all uh, is the um, my research into our uh, indigenous ethics and their intersection, possible future intersections with artificial intelligence um, uh, and the ways that my lived experience kind of um, interface with that. So, you know, as an in, um, Lakota woman um, and uh, moving through racism and daily is a daily part of reality. And it's taken me um, taking me a, sometimes I feel like we compart, can com, compartmentalize racism and kind of feel it, especially with the online stuff, like it, I feel like it can move through quickly and it can feel like a news story. But, um, you know, for example, uh, the, um, reading a head, a very harsh headline, you know, and seeing the really racist comments under it is, um, just one of the parts of um, algorithmic bias and 
um, the policies that uh, news and um, even comp just computational um, companies and systems and social media companies and the kind of dawning of the chat GPT, artificial intelligence, natural language processing era that we're entering, um, all of those things um, to me come from root issues. Um, um, a, the root issue of white supremacy, uh, racism, imperialism, and uh, colonial um, colonialism, and all of those things to me are essential bottom line issues that that just emerge um, um, in these online uh, situations as symptoms of these deeper cancerous uh, problems. But to me, I always have to remember that these problems are um, are choices by real people, just as we're real people and um, racism really physically hurts us and hurts our children. Um, uh, the world that it's made, the world that creates those issues, um, all those people are human beings who are making a choice to do that. Uh, so, I, and I also wanted to touch briefly on um, that how those safety how safety and I and I love what was just said by Bailey that the safety to me begins with the tools from the ground up, uh, tools that are um, per, that are built uh, by um, these uh, Western hegemonic powers um, are built with these racisms ingrained and um, all those they the, although they can be um, subtle at first. Uh, they uh, always do present themselves. Um, I also think about the, the uh, places online that I do feel good at, and actually sometimes face face private my pretty private family focused Facebook, which only got family members on it, feels awesome and feels super supportive. Um, you know, don't speak to other people. But then my other favorite groups are like ribbon skirt groups, where people are very very supportive, shockingly supportive sometimes. Um, recently I self-published an essay I, and so I'm a fine artist and I, uh, work professionally in the art world. And, um, I recently published, self-published an essay on my website, um, uh, called, uh, postmodernism is not permission, um, about an artist in my community who was using, um, uh, indigenous symbols and using my work as examples, uh, uh in a, ways that I felt were extremely inappropriate and racist. Uh, so I wrote an essay about that. I didn't name that person, but um, in the process, uh, they began to at attack me and call me evil. Um, they uh, kind of mounted this, this racist um, and hateful attacks um, on me. And um, yeah, it was, it may, it, sometimes it, I was just blown away that in 2023 that someone could be openly and outrightingly attack um, a native woman and still uh, be employed. Um, they recently had an exhibition at the Tulsa Artist Fellowship, and they, people continue to work for the, uh, work with them. And uh, and again, to me, that is because racism is a network of white supremacy, and uh, an online racism is only part of the work that has to be um, done. And we know this. I mean, this is we're just talking about one facet of racism. But you know, when someone is listening to indigenous voices online, and um, there there should be repercussions in the real world where um, 
they're, those voices are taken seriously and racism against Indigenous people is taken extremely seriously. And since living in Canada a little bit and living in the United States, it is, I, I know it's not great in Canada um, uh, for Indigenous peoples either, but I am uh, shocked sometimes at how uh, supportive um, I've felt in, in Canada, supported I felt in Canada versus in the United States where um, in, racism against Indigenous people is swept under the rug so extremely. Um, it takes so much to hold someone accountable. So um, uh, thank you for having me. I'm, um, I could continue to talk about this a lot, but thanks so much. Thanks, Suzanne. We're looking forward to uh, getting a bit deeper into some of the things you mentioned there. Um, Megan Tipler is, is our next panelist. She's a Métis educator who works as the Indigenous Strategies Manager in the Office of the Vice Provost, Indigenous Programming and Research at University of Alberta. Uh, Megan, welcome. Thank you. Um, that's a mouthful of a of an office, hey? Um, yeah, I, like tough acts to follow. Bailey was talking and I'm like, oh my God, what she said. Um, but I guess like my experience is a little bit, um, different because I did have a, I guess I still do have a somewhat visible social media platform. Um, when I was a school teacher, I had a page that I'd started actually originally just to communicate with kids. It was like reminders about, you know, permission slips and things like that. And at some point I'd started posting like book recommendations and indigenous literatures and it kind of an artwork and it blew up a little bit. And so I had this plat unexpected platform. And so some of the things that are being talked about in terms of like safety and like etiquette and interactions, um, those are definitely things I've experienced. Um, that being said, I also am really trying to remain hopeful in these social media spaces because I do see um, the positive shifts as well. And so even when there's those like really negative, horrible comments, um, my experience in the last couple of years has been that people step in, um, which wasn't necessarily the case, you know, three, four or five years ago. Um, you would see, you know, comments on Facebook articles or things like that. And um, it would just be an onslaught of disrespect and hatred and it felt really dangerous to step in and say anything. Whereas now I find that there's more people, indigenous, non-indigenous challenging some of that just because of the shift in public consciousness and public education. And we definitely have a long way to go. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me that that's like all in some ways reassuring, like that, yes, that hatefulness is still there, but that it's not going unchecked or unchallenged. Um, and then just as far as like dissemination of knowledge, like I think for me, the the upside of social media is accessibility and representation, um, being able to see and find community in ways that we weren't before. And, and Bailey touched on, you know, like social movements like Idle No More, where like, you know, Facebook was a huge part of that, um, being able to get that information out and communicated across the country um in a timely way to catalyze people into action um is so so important and and we're still seeing that that's possible but um I also think that there's like an element of like social media activism where it's just people posting and then there's no action following it as well so those things kind of have to exist in partnership like we've seen um can be done um 
But yeah, for me, like a lot of the the hate stems from the fact that like social media gives a platform to Indigenous people that didn't previously exist, that they can exist non uh, unapologetically. And that is um, uncomfortable for people who are not used to seeing Indigenous people outside of the margins. Um, And so that's where we see like, you know, the the response is... um, so horrendous I don't even know what word to use I just keep using the same words because that's it's it's I I try to think of why does that response happen and especially because I'm in education you know I'm in this teacher education space um and thinking like what are we what are we doing in schools that people are still so misinformed and still so ignorant that that that's their response and how we cultivated that across generations that we're seeing people feel comfortable to say those things in these very public forums and not feel any shame for it. Um, But then again, like the positive for me is that reclamation of space and that representation. Um, But I do think like, you know, both people who spoke for me, like speaking about youth as well and like the impact on them and the, the pressures, I know that I feel like I'm pushed into scenarios where I have to have all the answers at times. And um even in comment sections when people were, were, will be very, they're attacking you and you feel obligated to respond. And then if you don't, then it's another, oh, you're too scared to respond. Oh, you know, I'm right. Oh, you're this, you're that. So it's very antagonistic and it can be very difficult to remove yourself from those situations, even as someone who's used to doing it or has like, you know, become accustomed to social media. Um, so that safety piece is definitely still, you know, a work in progress. And then, yeah, the bias within social media, like Suzanne was saying, there's an algorithm bias, and that is part of the ingrained nature of colonialism and everything that's around us. Um, the other thing I would say is I think that specifically on like indigenous social media like collectives, um, I think it's provided some insight into intersectionality as well, because you know, even as far as like there was the Sephora campaign like a year or two ago. And people, you know, may notice like, well, where's like the Afro-Indigenous representation? Where are the bigger bodies? Where are the disabled bodies? Where are, you know, the 2SLGBTQ plus like visible representation, um, things like that. And so I think it allows us to have these conversations that are more nuanced um, or there's potential for it. It's not always able to happen. But yeah, I think for me, I'm really trying to find the hopefulness in social media um, especially just because it is something that I'm on so frequently. But um, yeah, I don't have all the answers either, but I'm happy for this conversation. Thanks very much, Megan. And hopefully we do come up with some answers today. <laughs> um, our next panelist is Catherine Martin. Unfortunately, uh, she's having a bit of trouble getting connected, um, some technical gremlins today. So we're hoping that she can join us along the way. Um, but in the meantime, we're just going to sort of move forward. Um, and, and a couple of you addressed this uh, a bit. Um, and I think that it's probably the best way to start is, is looking a bit at causes, um, of online hate towards Indigenous people. All of you work in different fields, you know, coming from the art world, education, academia. Um, so so I'm just going to put this to, to everyone and whoever wants to pick it up can. Um, and we'll just have the conversation that way. But why are we seeing so much of this? Um, I guess I'll, I'll jump in. I, I think what Megan said is a really interesting point about 
you know, suddenly now Indigenous people have a voice and there's no way to avoid us, I guess. And uh, that makes people who might have racial bias or, you know, would be hateful, that suddenly makes them come out of the work woodwork because now suddenly we're very visible. Um, these stories wouldn't have been posted before um, or they wouldn't have been viewed, they wouldn't have been deemed as important, but now people care and that makes people uncomfortable who don't care about Indigenous people or who want maybe have negative intentions and you see a lot of that pushback um, because people's viewpoints on the world, people's perspectives on life are being disrupted and that disruption is hard and if you're not prepared to deal with, if you're not prepared to think through your already preconceived biases, that's going to come through as hate. And social media in particular is bad because we have this idea of the keyboard warrior. Now suddenly you can say things behind behind a screen that you would never, ever be willing to say to someone's face. And I think that can perpetuate a lot of hate, the anonymity that social media brings Um while, you know, in some ways can be a really positive thing for people who are trying to like learn who they are, or trying to grow or trying to just like navigate these spaces, it can also cause a lot of harm because not only do we have people who can, you know, hide behind their keyboards, we also have, you know, maybe bad actors and bots who even add to the problem as well. And that hate can perpetuate hate and we can come up with these really toxic online spaces. So that's kind of my thoughts about that. I'm not sure if any of the other panelists have any ideas as well. Um, I, I was particularly thinking about how, um, how the, how bias in these, in these mechanisms is, you know, is one is I often think about like choice in the process of, um, of choice in terms of making ethical decisions and how, you know, thinking about, not to say that, um, indigenous communities are not immune from um, being hateful, um, because, um, online too, especially around, um, uh, specifically Lakota language, there's an extreme amount of vitriol um, person to person on Facebook. Um, so that's, that's definitely, but that's, um, you know, there are limits to those arguments and that's because people feel deep responsibility towards each other's families. It's not hate, it's, uh, it's disagreement. And I see the edges of that um, uh, in the way people make their choices and how they cite their sources and how they, think about themselves as members of a community who are responsible to that community. And that, that responsibility is to me, one of the key aspects of how, how things emerge as ethical or, or harmful. And the way I see it with um, the way online platforms are set up right now is um, no one feels responsible towards anyone. And while when I was young, it felt amazing to have to be totally anonymous um, on the wild west of the internet, let's say, uh, it felt awesome because um, I did not have to be responsible to anyone. But we live in a very real world. And the, um, the choices that people make are... Uh, what uh, it reflects exactly their values and who they resp feel responsible to. So one of the other arguments that I lean on heavily in terms of artificial intelligence and computational systems is uh, that uh, to me, this is an ontological problem where the beinghood of other people and other be and other um, animals um, uh, non-human beings, uh, seen and unseen, uh, and he, but especially human beings, is 
uh, not see, they're not seen as persons, as having interiority, as being important enough to be on the same level as a white person and not the same level as um, a settler. And so when we, what we're experiencing online is, you know, they see our humanity, like in a news story or a cry, or a cry out to community to say, you've done something that's going to hurt us or that is harmful or I'm, I'm hurt by this. The resp- when the response is hate and anger, I think it's um, part of it is this confrontation with the possible beinghood of someone that they uh, that challenges that seems to challenge um, who they are, and that un- that unknown somehow is so terrifying that it reflects all of the genocidal and murderous um, habits of their forefathers. And so, when um, I-, I think that when it comes to these. Um, online spaces and when one sees a little bit of racism that I don't want, I, I still do not want that to be indigenous people's responsibility to have to come out and say, this is so wrong. It, the responsibility then needs to be transferred I, to other white people who come in other settlers and say, this is wrong and I won't stand for it. That's an interesting point you make about um, responsibility and the responsibility of Indigenous peoples to to say something about it, which is sort of almost like double work. You know, you're putting your thoughts out there and, you're, and, and that sort of thing. Um, how can you get other people to step up, uh, non-Indigenous people to step up and actually say something about this? I can jump in. I just, carrying off the last question, like the... The thing that is difficult in this in asking this is that like the accountability piece for me, um, people dogpile, right? So and not always, but I think that there are conversations that lose their nuance online. And and so when Suzanne was talking, I was thinking like, you know, there's times like in person, if you had like an auntie check you and say, like, hey, you can't do that, or you need to go, that's not protocol, or this is, you know, like, and they are correct providing that gentle correction whereas an online space like someone an indigenous person might provide that correction to another indigenous person and then all of a sudden there's non-indigenous people interjecting being like yeah how could you do that blah blah and we've we've seen that play out especially i feel like on tiktok where um videos and information and comments are just like there's just they're so quick and um, people jump into the conversations they shouldn't be part of and so it's challenging to ask people to say, yes, we want you to step in, but you also need to be able to recognize when you're not supposed to be part of the conversation. And so when the hate is coming from non it, like just from like comment section, like I talked about earlier, or like just, you know, that vitriol that appears um, just in response to our presence or our being um, absolutely like, I don't want to deal with those comments in the comment section, calling me a squaw, calling me, you know, like any name that they can think of um, just because I've challenged um, their conception of the world. And um, I don't want to get into that back and forth. So yes, I want somebody to be able to step in and say like, Hey, I will, I will be, I will provide this like presence. Um, But I think in some ways like that has to be almost demonstrated to them or explicitly asked for because people are really like social media has this perfection paralysis element to it too. Like people don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to do the wrong thing because it's captured. It can be screenshotted. It can be, you know, like taken out of context. It can be um, just, just all of these things where like 
it can be really dangerous and information can be just spread so quickly without any of that context. And so um, I really liked Suzanne's question about the responsibility and the accountability, because I think in some ways you have to just accept that it's never going to be perfect. And like, who am I accountable to? Who am I responsible to? Who's, whose advice am I going to take? doesn't matter if you have 30 followers, 300 followers, 300,000 followers, whatever it might be. What is your ethic in an online space? How are you engaging with people and how can you foster that in others through what you're modeling? Um, yeah, that was just kind of my thinking. I really can mostly speak for the, for the art world and for, um, art, like the art communities that I'm in contact with. Um, I think that sometimes in these spaces that are more liberal or I don't know in the, in the U S that's how I'd use that term, um, are more, um, a lot of people who think that they're anti-racist and, and institutions that think they're anti-racist, um, are other artists who think that they're anti-racist. And, you know, now we see a lot of these institutions eat, like marketing themselves and using their supposed anti-racism as uh, a tool to make more money. Um, uh, when I, I, what I want to see is, is them to recognize that they are not immune to, uh, serious racist, um, tendencies because, uh, you know, picking and choosing when something is, uh, you know, racist enough to be, to be an issue, um, versus like super, like the kind of, Again, I'm in the U.S. Trumpian um, levels of outright racism. That there is to me, there really sh there's no gray area. Um, once you can dehumanize someone a little bit, you can go the you can go the whole way. Once you can degrade someone's beliefs a little bit, you can go the whole way. Uh, you know, I see this especially with appropriation, and I and I've I've gone back and forth in like terms of okay, so you know, I, I used to go to Coachella if someone's wearing a headdress there, um, uh, is it my job to go up to them, ruin my, per my, my nice Lakota day and, uh, explain to them and rip it off their heads or any, no, I don't think so. I think someone else, that should be someone else's job, uh, you know? Um, uh, and, but then, uh, but then at some point I was like, okay, well they, um, they're putting on the headdress. It's just like, to me, it's a big hat that says I'm an idiot. It's not, it's not going to physically, it's the, the, ha, the uh, headdress isn't going to hurt me, the Lakota woman walking around. Um, but then we get into other forms of appropriation, like, um, people, like people online, um, working art, professional artists trying to saying that they have like eagle medicine and they have spirit animals. Um, on what level does that cross over and need, need to be stopped? Because if that there's a difference between ignorance, I this um, I didn't know this was hurting anybody, and I know this is hurting um, people, and they've asked me to stop, but I don't want to because I don't feel like it. Um, I feel like I have I think I have a spirit animal. You know, when you can't actually parse those things out, that's when I really need institutions to step in and say um, appropriation is just one step in. One, it's not, it's more than a toe in, uh, to, to wider amounts of hate. Uh, it's, it's not just a toe. It, it's the, it's the tip of the iceberg. It says, I don't think that y your beliefs are important enough to me, 
to and I don't and I don't believe the history of the the genocide of your beliefs to be serious enough for me to take this seriously and stop the behavior. So and I but like one person can't do this. Like institutions and other members of the community who are not native need to step in and say, I see this is the tip of the iceberg. I believe you. So, so much of this too, I mean, we're talking about super, it's there's superficial change versus systemic change. Um, systemic change has to come through education. Um, mm-hmm. How do we make this happen um, to get to the point where, where people have the knowledge to step up, have the knowledge not to do these things, have, you know, are able to address their own biases when they see something online? Um, how, how do we get there? I think that, um, like again, Suzanne brought up a really good point, but I just like, I, so I work really closely with Dr. Dwayne Donald. That's my graduate supervisor. And one of the things he talks about is like the need to unlearn before we relearn. And we see this in conversations about truth and, truth and reconciliation as well, right? People want to jump to the reconciliation piece before they're willing to acknowledge the truth. And so it's sitting with that discomfort before you're jumping into um, that superficial, like, do you want to look anti-racist or do you want to be anti-racist, right? Do you want to look like you support Indigenous peoples or do you support Indigenous peoples? Because those aren't always the same thing. Um, And yeah, I absolutely agree that education is a key part of this. Um, It's also like there's, it's difficult because education was, you know, used as a tool of oppression. Um, but also education is a place of possibility. So I look at, you know, the, some of the future teachers that I've had the opportunity to be alongside in their undergraduate courses and um, just the shifts like from, from, you know, 12 years ago when I went through my B.Ed. or finished my B.Ed. and um, I didn't even feel comfortable voicing some of these things or I was just, you know, like, being able to name them because I felt them, but I didn't know what they were called because like, what is, you know, systemic oppression? Like no one talks about that in K to 12, 15, 20 years ago. Um, but now I'm like, I'm, you know, having these conversations with ninth graders, I'm having them with future teacher educators. So I just think that presence is so necessary, um, especially in university spaces, but it's difficult because I do see how indigenous faculty and staff take on extra work. Um, and they're educating their colleagues, they're educating students, they're, you know, being called to be on all these committees, they're just, just this extra workload. And so the education piece is important, but so is that systemic support um, and that validation of different types of knowledge and service. Um, something that comes up a lot is, you know, service to community. How is that um, valued within the institution, within education? So, um yeah, I just think systemically, you know, there's just so much that needs to shift. And until then, we're not going to see these like cultural changes that we want to. It's just going to remain on that very, you know, like veneer, superficial level, paint over the mold kind of thing. Um, and so I do put some responsibility onto like, you know, schools, institutions, employers um, to take this up. It can't be us as individuals only trying to do everything and support everyone. Um, it's just impossible. Does anyone else want to address that? Um, I'll just jump in really quick. I just, as we're having these conversations and as, you know, um, the other panelists are speaking, I'm just, you know, I've worked my, since graduating university, I've worked at the Métis Nation of Alberta. And I think in a lot of ways I've been spoiled because 
I don't necessarily have to deal with um, some of the institutional challenges that other people working in Indigenous spaces have to. You know, most of the people that I work with, especially the people in leadership, are Métis. They are Indigenous. Um, and it's kind of this idea, like for me, it's like as the Métis Nation moves into self-government, it's like how do we bring ourselves up? And that's where my focus has been so intensely, you know, for the past eight to 10 years is just focus on Métis people. And when I step out, when I step, you know, to collaborating with external partners, I'm, I'm always just shocked. I'm like, oh my gosh, like Indigenous people are fighting for these spaces. And it, I have seen it happen even within, you know, my own organization where I, sometimes I'm like, I'm having to have conversations with, you know, HR departments and I'm saying like, no, I want to hire the less, um, you know, the less educated, the less experienced Métis person over the non-Métis person because they bring so much knowledge, community knowledge, cultural knowledge, relationships, kinship ties to the position. And like, as Métis people, I want to build ourselves up. I want to be, you know, we're the Ultipimsoak, we're the people who own ourselves. And I don't necessarily know the answers when we move into other institutional organizations, into universities, into governments, but... I just think from my perspective, it's, it's such a, it's such a tricky thing. And I'm so privileged to have the opportunity to like, to be focused on Métis issues with Métis people in a Métis self-government as we move towards, you know, pushing for our own rights um, as a people. And I don't know if that necessarily answers the question, but it's just something that I've been kind of pondering when I think about how to answer these questions. And I'm having a hard time because my experience just isn't with kind of, with that, with focusing on how to bring Indigenous people into other spaces, because I'm so lucky to have, to be so insulated with Métis identity and Métis culture. Well, that's good. Is, is, is there a role for NGOs and other organizations in promoting a safe online environment and speech equality? So what role can they play? <laughs> That feels like a huge question. I mean, I'd say the same thing. Like, what what are they doing organ within their organization, right? Like, you can't. Um, and that's it. Do you want to look like you're doing it, or are you doing it? Because I think it's more powerful if you're doing the work within your own day to day existence as as an organization than to you know host a session or to bring in a guest speaker once or you know, have a elder come in one time or do the blanket exercise one time and it's just like a checklist item or is it like a living, breathing process that you're trying to live out in your day-to-day? Um, so yeah, so that, that would be my answer is, you know, what's the, what's the structural change that's happening within their organization um, that would give them the capacity to share out? Excellent. Yeah, that's sort of, um, I say to my kids, uh, it's easy when it's easy. Um, but, uh, but it's hard when it's hard. So, um, another audience question, uh, how much of an impact do we think the education system has on the hate that we see on, uh, on, uh, on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and, and so on? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Megan, I know your expertise is in education. I feel like I'm talking so much. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge piece, right? Like I said before, people feel comfortable to, to spout ignorance because it's gone unchallenged and and Canada has this story of nation building right and so people are really if their identity is tied to I'm a good proud Canadian and we're challenging that of course they're going to resist of course they're going to respond antagonistically of course they're going to you know so I think that that's part of like when I was saying before the unlearning before the relearning we can't just 
you know, paint over this and expect like, you know, happy days and everything's going to be okay and blah, blah, blah. It's, you really need to deconstruct first and understand why, like, how was that cultivated in the school system? How does the curriculum, how does teacher education, how does assessment, how do all those pieces contribute to what we know about the Canadian national story, what we know about how we interact with each other. And again, I'm going to go back to Dwayne. Like he'll talk about how that curriculum is really like relationship denial, that we've become separated from each other, that we've become separated from the natural world, which was something, you know, Suzanne talked about as well. And that we're really like grossly consumed with like individualism. We're not thinking about, the collective and we're not thinking about the impact of our actions on other people we're just so concerned with how it impacts us as an individual so yeah I do think a lot of that is rooted in the education system which is founded on a certain set of ideals um, that occurred alongside the creation of Canada so it's not surprising that you know that's embedded into that existence even now even though we're trying to make small changes even though we're saying like you know we're going to take up the TRC or in Alberta, like teachers have what's called TQS five teaching quality standard five, which is related to foundational indigenous knowledge. Um, but again, it gets treated like a checklist of items instead of just an ongoing process of um, learning and relearning and relationship building. So how do we, how do we get there? Um, I think that indigenous scholars are leading the way, but yeah, it takes time and it takes support and we're not there yet for sure. Thanks, Megan. Any other thoughts on, on education and, and, and what needs to change in education? Yeah, I just want to speak briefly from the U.S. perspective that um, while it, <laughs> we are experiencing an extreme attack on education in the United States, um, uh, it, is so, it is so bad and it is so scary that while uh People might not be um, looking towards the effect on Indigenous people right now. There's um, the attacks on uh, um, on race, obviously concern concern Native people too. And so, revisionist history is we're, we're no uh, stranger to that in the United States um, education system. But it whatever gains that were made education wise are going are, are lost at the moment um, as uh, state by state uh, Republican um, legislatures are uh, edit, literally editing history. I just saw them. I, I, I won't even describe They're They're so painfully um, white supremacist and racist and so obvious that, um, you know, extreme red flags about the fight that needs to, begin um, in order, because that's education is where the only place where teachers, where we get, we're able to have interventions and other um, opinions in young people's lives to say that actually it's not normal um, uh, to feel hateful towards people who are, I don't have the same skin color as you. It's in schools that that was, that's like the first intervention that that can happen. And if that goes away and it's normalized um, to uh, not have a single living native person taught in the classroom to teach that, um, you know, important black American figures um, uh, weren't even, uh, didn't have anything to do with race. Um, We edit out all 
uh, gay and trans um, contributions, those are just the beginnings of, of genocide. And that's um, of extreme extreme concern. And while um, the racism that uh, occurs um, at the kind of end point of uh, of experiencing hate online in the comments section and being attacked by um, uh, people in one's community, while those are those are the symptoms of definitely the educational problem. Um, we're kind of coming close to the end. We had one interesting question, um, and and I think you'd you'd mentioned this a bit, um, Suzanne. Um, but algorithm bias. Um, they said the result of having a few people of color and indigenous peoples in tech who build the systems. So how do we improve diversity within the industry? There. Well, that is you know this uh, another one of those extreme questions where the uh, you know the algorithmic bias is. Um, you know, getting people into uh, these these jobs is is one thing because people have started to enter these sort of jobs. But we know that once we have people in these jobs and we can't support them, um, they uh, will leave. And so how can we can't just have like a few people building these tools? I mean, you also have to consider the ethics of the people who, who especially the great concern is people who monitor online hate um, and uh, the research and journalism that's been done on that has been amazing um, because someone has to filter through all these. And usually it's not an um, upper level, um, you know, white uh, administrator um, at Facebook or Instagram. You know, it's somebody uh, who's not. And so then the, um, the in order to get people in this industry, um, it starts with projects um, uh, like uh, the, especially at Concordia with the Initiative for Indigenous Futures and the Indigenous Futures Research Center. And the um, uh, not only asking how we can get people in the door uh, into jobs, but how we can, um, you know, host uh, young people in, as early as high school and say, how, um, how can we foster your interest in computational media? Um, and how can we build paths for the people who come after us that are safer than the ones that we've traveled? I've been very blessed to travel very safe paths, especially um, into Concordia University, um, because I had, you know, two amazing indigenous professors to, um, to mentor me um, and to make us, they had already made, um, carved very safe paths for me. So I want to make sure the, the path I'm carving for the younger people behind me is just a little bit safer at least. And while we're speaking about education, um, uh, finally, we're able to bring in Catherine Martin, um, uh, one of our panelists, a uh, member of Millbrook Mi'kmaq First Nation near Toronto, Nova Scotia. Um, she's a filmmaker and producer, director of Indigenous Community Engagement at Dalhousie University. And Catherine, um, thanks for being with us. Are you, are you ready to speak about this? I just want to congratulate everybody for uh, starting this. I hope that this is many, many to come. Uh, this is like a, a talking circle. It needs us to continue to have the discussion. And um, I've been following everybody. I just haven't been able to connect. So I've been uh, really interested in, and very happy to hear people speaking the truth. Um, for sure, the younger children need to begin now. I, when, when internet first came out in Facebook and chat and, you know, I saw a lot of issues and 
way back then, I I begged people to really get hold of, you know, educating our youth and the more so the adults about protocol and uh, you know the the lasting effects and the deadly effects of hate, digital hate, and um, we here in the Atlantic have experienced it in our communities. In the non-native communities, we've lost young children, and most likely we've lost adults who may not have um, let us know that you know they were alone and hurt and and feeling hate. Um, you know, I I I know that um, you know we're missing a lot of values and morals and et- ethics these days in not just in the education world, but in our homes. And so I think that we could be of some help if we look at our traditional ways and our language and that word hate. Um, we were never allowed to say hate in my family. Uh, you were, it was like a swear when you said hate. And so uh, when I hear it, it, it's, it just worries me so much. And because it's such a strong, not only a strong word, but a strong emotion. Look at um, the killings we're having all over uh, United States and Canada, uh, young children going in and being influenced by whatever or older children uh, or adults and, you know, I wonder, you know, what are they watching? What are they seeing? What are they being told online? And it's such a isolating place. Um, it, you know, you're getting threatened. You're getting um, stolen. You're getting, uh, there, there are so many predators out there that um, using hate, one of the strongest words I know, and the whole, and using internet to to put fear in people drives many of them to take their lives. And I think we need to try to find ways to um, address that in the schools, at homes, and um, as a society. We also um, are experiencing, as I heard often on on this broadcast, so much Um, lateral violence online within our universities especially lately over this in this um, identity issue it's causing I mean as a Mi'kmaq and I heard often some of our panelists talk about it you know because we have treaty rights now we're being uh, attacked online and physically uh, we just had somebody shot someone in the leg because they were trying to practice their um, eel fishing rights. Um, you know, we, we tend to put things out here and we don't, before we put it all out there, we don't spend any time looking at the regulations and the consequences and educating people about it. And I know we're out of time. So I just wanted to, um, I wanted to welcome you to Migmagi. But I also wanted to give you a chant to help us with our uh, heartbeat. Thank you, Great Spirit, 
for thunder in the sky. Thanks for the daytime and for the night. Thanks for the seasons that are part of life. Thanks for the way of our life. Yo, yahi, yahi, yo. So I just wanted to say that if we spend more time looking at our traditional ways before internet, before this notion and strong emotion of hate has come into our territory, you know, we would find that speaking from the heart is speaking the truth and it's the first language that we were given all over the earth from our mothers, the, the heartbeat. And maybe if we could go back to that time where we only speak good things from our heart, um, we might be able to help change the direction this hate online is going. Willalioq uh, and uh, Msitnogma. Catherine, thank you. That was that was just wonderful. That's a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much. Um, thank you to uh, Suzanne, Bailey, and, and Megan as well. Um, we have so much to think about going forward and, and so grateful to all of you. Uh, now we'll go back to Lauren to wrap things up. Thank you, Christy. I was on mute as well. Um, you did a wonderful job moderating. We were so, so grateful to have you. And thank you to Bailey, Suzanne, Megan, and Catherine. I'm so glad you could join us, Catherine. Um, <laughs> You were all brilliant. I'm so excited that we could have you on. I really appreciate you taking the time and to our audience. Thank you and stay tuned for more of our roundtable events. Goodbye.